Hello all, uh, welcome to another episode of uh, Direct Shift Story. Wish you all a happy new month, happy February. We are proud to begin celebrating Black History Month in February. And throughout this month, we'll be sharing stories from inspiring Black trailblazers, past and present. And uh, so for the next four weeks, we'll be periodically paying tribute to Black leaders who uh, made strides in their quest for freedom, um, be it in peace and justice as well. So this month we are highlighting black men and women uh, who are the trailblazers who are positively changing their communities and the world. And uh, uh, in fact, uh, the purpose is to focus on the African uh, diaspora and the spread of black families across the country. So this is also the 45th anniversary of celebrating Black History Month in the U.S. And today we have uh, Dr. Clayton Ramsu. I'm like super proud. Thank you so much, Dr. Ramsu. Uh, he's a native of Philadelphia. Uh, he's a veteran of both U.S. Navy and Air Force. Uh, in fact, um, after retiring uh, with 25 years of service as a Leftland Colonel, uh, he received his bachelor's degree in biology from South Carolina State University. His medical degree is from uh, Morehouse School of Medicine uh, and uh, residency training from Mayo Clinic in Jackson, uh, Jacksonville, Florida. He holds a master's in healthcare management from Troy University and is a fellow with the American Academy of Family Medicine. Uh, Dr. Ramsu has held progressive leadership positions during his career, including senior medical officer, medical director, Chief of Staff, Regional Medical Director, and Vice President of Medical Affairs. It's an honor, sir. And uh, over to you, Wamshi. Thank you. Thank you, Raj. Thanks again for creating another pretty impactful episode. To all our, our viewers and our audience, happy Black History Month. Direct Shifts is very proud to celebrate Black History Month with all of you by highlighting some incredible black physicians and leaders all throughout the month. And like Raj said, today we are honored to kick uh, this celebration off by having Dr. Clayton Romsu on our platform today. As you all know, Direct Shifts uh, is a company that connects healthcare clinicians directly to employers. As a part of our mission, we have been bringing out stories of various clinicians as a part of this podcast. So today, we have a great healthcare leader, a great human being, a great family medicine, and a great clinician, a double hero who served our country and who served the healthcare space. I can go on and on. I'm privileged to have Dr. Clayton Ramsu on our platform today. And I'm privileged to kick off our celebration of Black History Month by introducing to you all Dr. Ramsu. Uh, Dr. Ramsu, I know. Uh, I may not have done full justice to all the impact that you have created throughout these years. Please take a moment to tell us about yourself. And we are so grateful to have you on our platform today. And over the podcast, we'll be touching upon multiple uh, aspects of healthcare, leadership, as well as diversity and inclusion. The topics that you mentioned are very close to your heart. So please take a moment and tell us about yourself and what you look forward to in this podcast. Well, first of all, I'd like to thank you for the invitation. Uh, it's it's quite an honor for me uh, to even be here, uh, especially uh, we're in Black History Month, uh, and I think it's important uh, that we 
celebrate all the heroes, period. Uh, uh, thank you for calling me one. I, I don't think I am one, but uh, there are many people to recognize during this period. So uh, my journey <laughs> actually started, uh, I'm a native of Philadelphia, as you said before. Uh, my journey started as an, as an enlisted sailor uh, in the United States Navy. I became a hospital corpsman, uh, then a surgical tech uh, after that. Uh, you know, went decided I wanted to be a physician, uh, and when I was looking to be one, uh, it was very rare that I found a physician that looked like me that could help me in that journey. Uh, there were several people that encouraged me, um, and and I decided to uh, pursue that. Went to South Carolina State University, uh, a, a historically black university, college and university, uh, and very very proud to have gone there. Uh, went to medical school at. Uh, Morehouse School of Medicine, excellent institution. Hello to Morehouse there, to all the faculty, alumni, and staff uh, that are there, uh, and got the got the privilege to serve my country again, uh, and retired after uh, 25 years of service. Um, so my, the things that are important to me, of course, are negating and decreasing the, the disparity in healthcare, uh, especially among our population. Also, represent representation. Uh, we have to look at uh, how. Uh, we're represented as not only African-Americans, but the, the, all the historically excluded groups uh, in America and also uh, in healthcare, especially uh, in healthcare leadership. Uh, and that's the niche that I, that I have found myself in to try to develop, teach, coach uh, those uh, leaders, healthcare leaders, especially clinician leaders of diversity for the next generation. And I'm proud to do so. Thank you so much, Dr. Ramso, for the service that you provide to the communities. I fully appreciate and know that heroes need no titles. But we, as the people that are benefiting from heroes like you, would like to call you heroes. Um, there is a reason you know, why you just mentioned disparity in healthcare. You're a clinician by background. Um, the impact of HBCUs in bringing up, bringing forward more opportunities for um, all the Black populations. Uh, you touched upon also the need for diversity and diversity and more leadership from you know, the minorities uh, into the healthcare space and in fact all realms of the world. For all those reasons, you know your fight for bringing all of this to the forefront, as well as serving the country and being a healthcare uh, worker and a clinician and a physician, uh, you're definitely a hero to us. Let me just uh, reiterate that. Ayn, um, you touched upon an important point just now, which is um, um, disparities in healthcare, and we all know uh, there are statistics out there. COVID has disproportionately impacted Black populations compared to uh, other populations. Uh, there is statistics to prove it. There. How do you think the existing healthcare infrastructure, maybe the staffing, maybe the actual clinicians, maybe the access to healthcare, those things have to change? in order to really tackle this disproportionate impact that not just the pandemic is having on some populations, but general healthcare issues are having on specific populations. What, what in your opinion should be changes to the healthcare infrastructure, being a leadership coach yourself, what are you seeing in terms of uh, the right changes that need to happen? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. I think that it is not just one thing. I think it's multifactorial. Uh, we have to also realize that healthcare, and I think this is an extremely important point, healthcare is for people given 
and administrators by people. And we have to put the human aspect back into that. We have to ask those hard questions. We have to say that, <clears throat> that people need us. And what we're seeing now is that we have the highest physician burnout that almost we've already we've had in centuries. And why is that? And we have to look at that. We have to ask those hard questions. So some of the things that I that I look forward to in changing uh, the, the healthcare uh, continuum as it is now is that we have to start asking the hard questions and we have to start out by being truthful because you cannot go forward if you do not know where you are right now. And I think those hard questions are starting to be asked right now. Uh, because we're if we're looking at staffing, let's, let's take the components that you uh, that you alliterated to. If we're looking at staffing, well, ten percent between uh, African American and and Latin and Latin populations, we make up ten percent of the physicians in the country, for thirty percent of the population. Those numbers alone say that there's something that needs to be addressed. The number of African American males that are currently uh, in medicine, two point five percent for 7% of the population. We have to look at those numbers. We have to start to address those. Some And some of those are in forms like this, that we that we are able to present ourselves uh, and we're able to be seen. Sometimes you just need to be seen. Uh, I had the privilege of interviewing uh, a potential medical student and they were uh, Af African-American descent. And they told me that at 22 years old, the first time that they saw an African-American physician was a year ago. There's something wrong with that. So we need to not only be seen, we need to be heard. Uh, we need to make our presence known. We need to ask the hard questions. And you know, having that integrity to do so, it comes with a cost. There is nothing that is worthwhile that does not come with a cost. And that cost for us is sometimes where we're not gonna be popular. And I'm not in this to be popular, but I'm in it to make a difference. We have the charge to speak for those people who cannot speak for themselves. And that's what I'm here to do. And that's what I'm encouraging other, other physicians to do, clinicians, uh, nurses. I mean, there are so many frontline heroes that, you know, the custodial staff, the maintenance staff, they're working overtime too. They're, they're in this with us. Uh, and we have to understand that now it's about people. You know, we love AI, we love technology. It is a tool, but we have to get back to the people aspect of it. Uh, to use a an analogy from Six Sigma, you start with the end in mind. What mm -hmm. do our people need to go forward? What is not being done and how do we address it? And it's going to take more than one mind to do it. It's going to take collaboration. It's going to take understanding. It's going to take listening to each other in, in order to, to even move the needle at all. Completely understand, Dr. Ramso. Thank you for sharing those points, especially it's for the people and by the people and the human factor has to be forefront and keep Absolutely. the end in mind and work backwards so that you can design the right strategies to improve that access. Absolutely well said. Uh, just one point with regard to that. Uh, in one of our previous discussions, it was stated very rightly so that just by creating access to now multiple areas where you could go get healthcare, or potentially inserting technology into improving access, it still does not solve the problem because there is history to why people are sensitive to certain cultures, why they are sensitive to certain areas, certain people. The cultural sensitivities of the people have to still be addressed. 
it is still not easy for people to come out of it and then just still use the resources that are being made accessible to them. You just cannot think by now making more resources accessible to you know, these populations that have traditionally not have had the opportunity to access the right resources, you cannot think the problem is solved or by inserting technology, the problem is solved. The sensitivities of all of these populations, the, the different determinants of health that are coming across now, in my opinion, it cannot just be social determinants. I think it should be racial determinants of health, uh, cultural determinants of health, social determinants of health, economic determinants of health, all of them have to be clubbed together. Can you tell us your opinion, Dr. Ramsu, on how currently, even though the resources may be increasing, although there is still shortage, it still does not solve the problem until you actually take care of those sensitivities that these populations actually have in order to access those resources. I'd be happy to. Um, one thing that you mentioned uh, is to uh, ask those, you know, as we talked about before, answering those hard questions. Uh, and are we asking those questions? Where are the at-risk populations? Uh, there has been increasing education on cultural competency. Uh, and I think that, you know, some of that will uh, go forward. Uh, and I think it's necessary. Uh, and if we're look, looking at leadership, and, and and this is something, a topic that I would really like to talk about, and we'll talk about it throughout uh, this interaction, who makes the decisions about where the resources go? Who has access to the, so how can you represent me? And we can we can even use an, an, another topic. Uh, I'm, I'm also a veteran. So if you are trying to address veterans affairs, if you're trying to address me as a veteran, and you have no idea what I went through, and you're not a veteran, but you're making the decisions about me as a veteran, how can you do that? Okay, we take that same example and we put it to cultural competency. We take it to, we, we put it to representation of historically excluded groups. How can you represent my population and serve my population if I'm not at the table helping you to make those decisions? Um, that, and you know, I think that's a book topic uh, that I want to work on, you know, don't just invite me to the dance. I, help, let me help you plan what's going on because I have, a, you know, I have a vested interest in that population. I have a vested interest in the veterans population. I have a vested interest in African American the population and all minorities or you know population. I have a vested interest in that, so I'm going to try to make sure that they are looked that they are looked at or ask them the question: What do you need, and how do you need it? Help me solve the problem. The problem, the problem solving doesn't come from just us as administrators or us as clinicians. Again, starting with the end in mind, what does the patient need? What are, the, what are they not getting? It's okay for me to set up an appointment from, but what if they can't get there? Or what if they get there and I, and I prescribe something, but they can't afford the medication? We have to start thinking about healthcare itself as a continuum and not, and not as episodic care and not as sections of care. From the time that you have a, for actually earlier than the time that you have a, a illness, let's start with your health. Let's just talk, talk about preventive medicine measures. Let's talk about how come in certain populations we don't have uh, a whole foods uh, or sprouts where we can, we, we can have healthy, we can make healthier uh, lifestyle choices. Let's start there. Uh, let's start, if some of the initiatives that I love there's a barbershop initiative going on uh, in several communities. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, as an African American male, I go to the barbershop. Well, I used to go to the barbershop before I got, you know, shaved my head bald before COVID. <laughs> um, 
So, but I would go to the barbershop and we would have philosophical, uh, and, uh, you know, and um, political discussions in the barbershop. Why can't we turn that in? And those have been now been turned into health discussions. I think that's brilliant. Meet people where they are, take them to where you want them to go. That's kind of, that's the approach that we that we need right now. I I cannot solve your problem as a patient if I don't know what your concerns are. Um, and again, bringing in the people aspect of it, technology is fine. Technology helps us do all the things that we're doing now. Uh, it helped us with the crisis, but it was the people that stepped up in every aspect. It was the people, and we need to we need to reinsure that we're taking care of the people, not only the people that uh, that need our help, but the people that are doing the helping. When was the last time as a clinician, and I hear this from clinicians all the time, and I ask them directly, when was the last time you were asked, where do you wanna go in your career? What makes you happy? Or what makes your job harder to do? I can come up with policies that, uh, you know, that meet criteria, that meet regulations, but when I administer them, how do they affect that interaction between you and the patient? Uh, I've been an advocate of telemedicine for years and wondered why it wasn't bigger. Telemedicine has been around for 22, 25 years. I, I encountered it in the military. I encountered it in residency training. So what took so long for, for it to become an acceptable patient encounter? It had to do with finances. Who was paying for it? That can't be the thrust of what we do. We're not going to solve any problems in healthcare by just concentrating on any dollars. If we concentrate on the people, if we concentrate on the needs, if we concentrate on trying to give efficient, essential delivery of healthcare products, that's where we're going to make the difference. That is absolutely well said. Uh, that reminds me, Dr. Ramsu, of a very impactful statement one of my friends made. Uh, a few months ago when I was dealing with uh, helping uh, organizations from direct shifts, we were dealing with helping organizations procure staffing to take care of the COVID task force. One of my good friends who also happens to be a physician told me, the purpose of business of healthcare is not to make money. It is to use money as a tool to improve people's health. Absolutely. You exactly said the same thing, which is, People need to be at the core of the actual business of healthcare. Go meet the people where they are, understand the needs, use that as the end point and work backwards to now design strategies. That's with, with that, with that, I'm trying to continuously ingrain that, uh, that uh, in my brain. Uh, and that's again, very well said. With that as a core, there are still leaders out there very impactful healthcare leaders, probably with the right intentions to improve healthcare outcomes, et cetera, uh, but end up defining quality of care with some standard quantitative protocols and are unable to really incorporate the people's needs into those definitions of quality of care. In your leadership coaching, Dr. Ramsu, uh, for all the viewers out there, you can see at the background, Ramsu Consulting Group, Dr. Ramsu is also a healthcare leadership coach. I would encourage every one of you to go check it out with a lot of impactful, transformative uh, leadership coaching happening as a part of Ramsu Consulting Group. So as a part of that leadership coaching and consulting, uh, Dr. Ramsu, how do you help healthcare leaders 
move away from completely and only determining quality of care through quantitative metrics, but incorporate the actual understanding of patient care needs and the patient populations into their definitions of quality of care? Well, I think that's an excellent question. Uh, and it's a very, very tricky one because sometimes you have to, those quality measures are linked to reimbursement, which is linked. So when we're linked to, we're linked to money, uh, and, and we're linked to re reimbursement. Sometimes those quality measures are, are, are mandated and regulated by uh, by CMS uh, for for payment. But in saying that, we're all charged up about big data. Everybody says, "Oh, we need big data." We, so, what are you doing with the data? What does the data mean? So, it has to pass for me. It has to pass the three M test. So, three M test for me is: is it meaningful? The data you're collecting is it meaningful? Is it measurable and is it modifiable? If it does not meet those three criteria, then we pro that's probably not something, we, you know, a metric we need to use. Because if you can't change, if any, let's just take any one of those parts. If any one of those parts is missing, then functionally it doesn't work. So if you have a metric that you're measuring that is not meaningful, you're just collecting data. If you have one that's not measurable, well, how do you know if you're getting to your goal? You have one that's not modifiable, so you're collecting data that you can't do anything with. So I think it has to meet those three those three measures. Um, and we have to get back to, again, relationship. And when I talk to uh, my clients, my coaching clients, we have to make sure that, and I think burnout has a lot to do with it, but we have to make sure that their core values, again, we're talking personally, your core values match up with what you're doing at the particular time. And I think that's where there's a problem. People's core values change over time. Um, you know, when you when I first started this, I didn't have children, I wasn't married, so things changed. So family values be, became a part of what what I see as my core values. So I have to align my career. So we we spent so much time because we're so linear in our careers. We're told to go to undergrad. We're told to go to medical school. Then we go to residency and maybe fellowship, and then they tell you to go to work. And then seven to ten years later. I, these are the clients I get saying, okay, now what? Is this all I'm supposed to do? What other things that I have to do? So there's several, several pathways that I go through. One is identifying your core values. You have to know what those are, because if you're going against those, then you're going to have a problem down the line. And that helps, that creates frustration, that creates aggravation, that creates anger, which, which may create in, in turn, uh, your burnout. Uh, then we talk about, well, where do you see yourself being? What would be ideal for you? There's so many parts. I've met so many clinicians that have so many wonderful parts to them, including I've met some that are um, songwriters. I'm, I'm talking about Grammy award-winning songwriders, um, but they're also, they're also physicians uh, who are musicians, who were star athletes, who were Olympic athletes, but they don't bring their whole selves to work. They think that, you know, the biggest mistake that organizations make is to treat the clinicians like a, like a full time equivalent, an FTE. There are much more than that. And if you want to get that, if you want to get more out of them, then you have to treat them, treat them as such. So I asked them to what is your ideal and what does that look like? And you'd be surprised how many times I asked those first two questions that we have to go to another session because they haven't thought about it. They haven't taken the time to think about it of where they want to go. What would be ideal for you? Do you want to you know, go into research? There are some physicians that I coach that are phenomenal teachers, but they're not teaching. But that is what they actually love, and that's what they that's where they excel. 
Uh, so I try to I try to line them up, try to get them to line up because the, the chief the chief tenant of coaching itself is that you can solve your problem. You have the answers to your problem. I just shine lights on possibilities. So you've been on the real big road going down there. So right now we're going to go off roading and we're going to we're going to look at some other possibilities. So my job is to open up your realm of possibilities and have you think about some other things that would maximize your fulfillment within medicine. And that's why, you know, it, it, there's nothing like uh, seeing a physician that is unhappy seeing patients. That is, that is not a good experience. And how, we, how can we gain back that patient experience? How can we gain back that joy and that fulfillment within healthcare? By aligning our, what we're doing with our core values. And then as we looked at, I helped them create a roadmap to follow with, with actionable items for their next step in their career, whether it be leadership, whether it be going into research, sometimes it's just not being in the in that particular facility. Um, and sometimes you just don't, and sometimes it's going back to get additional certifications and, and degrees. Um, I was one, uh, as my, my mother also always jokes that, you know, I, I couldn't get you to, to read a book hardly, you know, when you were in high school, and now I can't stop you from getting certifications, you know, the irony of life itself, uh, because, you have a thirst for knowledge and you see different as you go along you see different pockets and you see different gaps and i want to know more about those gaps and i want to get more knowledge about those gaps and there are there are a lot of other clinicians who are just like me who are doing some wonderful things out there but we need to highlight those the first thing is to identify that there that you are not happy where, where you are and be willing to do something about it once we and we get to that point the rest is very easy the, you know, the rest of the job is easy. It's just execution. Great point. Great point. Well said. Uh, I totally appreciate you not only have the thirst for knowledge, Dr. Ramso, you also have the thirst for sharing it. Thank you for that. And um, you mentioned uh, the point around a lot of these core values should be incorporated into leadership coaching and what leaders look at as, look at as important things for them, especially in mentoring clinicians to look at this holistically uh, and not just uh, you know with a parochial view. Having said that, we have worked with a lot of healthcare leaders as well. You mentioned who makes the decision. You know, a lot of leaders who make the decisions. Couple of arguments that have emerged out of these discussions have always been: well, we have the metrics in place. We have the revenue metrics, productivity metrics, quality metrics, patient experience score metrics. We have all these things in metrics, which are. Uh, the quadruple AIM-related metrics, the IHI's quadruple AIM-related metrics, we have them in place. Those metrics should take care of it. So we are doing everything that needs to be done. So there is really no need to change how we approach some of our care mechanisms, some of our uh, leadership mechanisms, or some of our implementation mechanisms with respect to quality of care or, or accessing the patients and understanding what the patients need. Is that sufficient? Is having metrics to the quadruple aim that many organizations follow now, is that sufficient? Let's talk about especially primary care or preventative care, which is the foundational care mechanisms, the first touch point a patient would have. Uh, and then we can pro probably go into the, the acute care as well, uh, secondary tertiary cares. But specifically with respect to the primary care, uh, are those metrics good enough to really impact and make sure the patients are getting the outcomes that from a health perspective? Uh, I think that's also a good question. And you, and as you know, that's being, that's being studied continuously. 
that is not a one-time look at problem and then we've solved it and then we move on. Uh, it, but I think it needs to be looked at as several different, uh, from several different perspectives. Metrics, I consider guidelines. Um, they are, they are, we are entirely in respect and have been around in practice when evidence-based guidelines came along. Um, and, and, you know, at first, any, the change was, oh, well, why are we doing this? Is, are they telling me how to practice medicine? No, what we're saying is that based upon the data that we've collected, your outcomes will be better if you can follow these guidelines. Now, with, with respect to guidelines, there's always room for clinical judgment. Uh, that's where, again, the, the person and the people come in. So a guideline alone or a metric alone doesn't solve any problem for a person. So if you tell, so I had an experience um, with one of my parents um, with a, a cancer diagnosis. So if we follow the metrics, uh, if we follow the, you follow the metrics, we follow the guidelines, she got better. Uh, but when we're talking about recurrence, is that metric, you know, we think about when she, when they, she thought she had a recurrence, did that guideline, did that metric make her feel any better about the possibility that her cancer may have returned? Hmm. It Did it help? Yes. Did it solve the problem? No. Did her? Did it make her feel any more confident about what is happening to her? We have to under, We really have to get back to understanding that illnesses, uh, healthcare happens to people. You tell someone that they may have recurrent cancer, and they stop. You can't say anything you said after that point. They probably didn't hear. They're trying to figure out how can this happen to me and what can we do about it. And so, what comes there? The support. The making sure that you know that, that your support system is lined up to make sure that you can get to your appointments to make sure that you know you can get fully diagnostically evaluated. So that's not just metric. So metrics are good. You know, I, I think it keeps a lot of this in line, but we cannot make decisions based upon just like we make decisions based upon just data. No, the numbers don't lie, but they don't tell the whole story either. So that's why you have people involved. Because it, it, you know, even if you're talking about, I was, you know, worked in uh, Medicaid for for insurance Medicaid, and there are, why would you have a, a suite full of medical directors that go over um, some of the parameters that don't meet the screening nurses, the utilization management nurses' computer screen? Because everything doesn't fall into an algorithm. When it falls out of algorithm, that's why the medical director is there to to make to have that conversation with the clinician to see what the best approach is most reasonable approach evidence-based approach is for that patient we need again we need to add the people to the you know got you know, metrics or guidelines we yep. need to add the people to that so great point great points i think metrics are guidelines we need them the numbers don't lie they don't tell the whole story either you always have to have additional mechanisms to appreciate the true needs of the patients, to be more culturally sensitive, racially sensitive to the patient's needs while looking at the metrics that will help you as guidelines in your operations. That's absolutely well said. Along the same lines, I've always wondered, Dr. Ramsey, I would love to get your uh, opinions and observations on this. Like Value-based care, the way it has evolved, focus more on the holistic outcomes versus fee-for-service, and which by intention and design, it's a great model to evolve towards so that you're actually focusing on 
the health outcomes which the business of healthcare should be focusing on versus fee for service, provide the service, get the revenue. So it's a great model. I think a lot of us appreciate that it's a great model. Having said that, has that model penetrated enough to appreciate uh, people's needs to the extent that it should be? I mean, have you seen that model really making an impact in the black population's health outcomes, or is it still not evolved to the extent that it's supposed to in those populations? Especially, I tend to believe personally that value-based care has to have bigger impacts in populations that traditionally have been underserved with respect to healthcare. And you were mentioning these statistics, 10% uh, of um, uh, black uh, clinicians, physicians versus 30% or black and Latino versus 30% of the populations, 2.5% of um, uh, black male physicians versus 7.5% of the whole populations. So uh, automatically we are seeing disparities you know, in certain populations and in healthcare. Right. And I personally think that value-based care should be focusing on closing those disparities more, take more value-based care towards those populations versus focusing on populations that are already better served with respect to healthcare and health outcomes. So my point here, my question to you is, are you seeing value-based care as a potential alternative, a good alternative to just focus on quantitative metrics and providing healthcare to that? And is value-based care evolving towards really producing better healthcare outcomes? And is it penetrated enough in the populations that have traditionally been underserved for healthcare? Okay, so I'll take those um, in parts. So as a model, value-based care itself, uh, it's, has it penetrated, first of all, has it penetrated the market of healthcare enough? With outcomes that we have now, it, it, you can look at across the nation and know that it has not penetrated enough. There's no discussion about that. Um, and a lot of that is because of change. We're looking at, we, we've done value, we've done fee-for-service, we've done the other models for years and years and years, and now someone comes into you and said, okay, well now, I'm making you a full risk for the outcomes of these patients. Okay, well, you just told me 20 years ago that I couldn't take, for the last 20 years, I couldn't take full risk, that I, if I didn't have a specialist, you know, we were going to court, <laughs> I was going to have something on my National Practitioner Data Bank, but now we're changing this around. So again, similarly with, um, you know, pain is the fifth vital sign. That's a whole different thing that I remember when they were taking us to court for not treating someone's pain and now we're in an opioid epidemic. So uh, in the same lane. Yeah. So is it is it a is it really addressing our population? I don't think that it's it, that the historically excluded groups that it's really penetrated that population. Are there models that are going to that now that are working? Absolutely. Uh, and it, going back to one of my first statement is that if you you know you have to look at healthcare as a continuum. And when you are dealing in a, in a value-based model, you're dealing with that continuum. So what I'm trying to do is one, keep you healthy. So I'm trying to make sure that, you know, I'm addressing your weight. I'll make sure that I'm trying to, you know, address your lifestyle but before we get into trouble. Then I'm responsible for you during that continuum. So it behooves me to make sure that I have coordinated care within that model. So the coordination and the continuum. So the, the, one of the, my biggest pet peeves is being discharged from the hospital. I think there's such a gap between the time someone is discharged from the hospital and the, it, we could just look at readmission uh, rates on, uh, on uh, billing data. 
to know that the re-admission rates are, are too high. We And we have data that says that if I contact you within 48 to 72 hours of your admission and I do a medication reconciliation, which is one of the primary reasons that people you know, go back into the hospital because they don't know how to take their medication. I have this bag of medication when I went, before I went into the hospital, my medications were changed. Now I have two bags of medication and I don't know which one I should take and when. Um, it sounds simple, but it, it is difficult to administrate because if we don't focus on it. So I think that the, that the value-based model, I think it has merit. Uh, is it penetrated the way, in a manner that it should be penetrated at this particular time? No, we're progressing to that because, and now we're collecting, there, there are some uh, forums, I mean, there, and I think we've done it better. If we look at examples, I think we've done it better in the senior population. So if you look at some of the senior populations, some of those organizations, and I can't, unfortunately I can't mention their names, but you know some of those organizations have really taken that value-based model and they've shown, and they have data to show that it works. Their outcomes are better. Even though they're at a, they have a high-risk population because let's face it, as we get a couple more mango seasons under our belt, we have more problems and we're not going to live forever. So sometimes, you know, that transition of life is something that happens, but they are proven that they're, it's better and that the care, the care is better, their outcomes are better. So I think that, you know, I think it's a start. I think we need to target it in some other populations, but it's going to take some administrative push to, in order for us to do that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think those are great points. And um, you mentioned that, well, she will take this quick question uh, from Mrs. D. Thank you so much for listening to this live. Um, this is for Dr. Ramsu. I'll read the question. Is it realistic to expect that we'll be moving to value-based care when the entire process is so focused on dollars and fee for the service? Excellent question, and thank you for that question. Uh, I think we will move to fee-for-service. I think it will be, I mean, um, excuse me, we move to value-based care. Will we move to it th totally this year? Will there ever be a hundred percent penetration? I don't think there would be a hundred percent penetration. I think there, I think there are some other considerations with that. But I think you will see progression. Uh, but what we want to do is try. I think it will come out with patient choice. I think if you give people options, and they and you know, word of mouth is still the the best marketing that there is around. So if you hear someone say. Uh, you know, as I'm getting closer to my AARP, uh, I'm already AARP, but getting closer to become to being considered a senior citizen, uh, I going to one place and getting most of my healthcare needs taken care of in that one place with people who I know and who know me and who have a vested interest in keeping me as healthy as possible. I think that will catch on and I think that'll catch on because we made the decision, you know, and not only as patients, but, you know, you know, consumers are much, patients and consumers are much more informed than they were before. They're, they're taking control uh, of their healthcare. So I think it will penetrate. Do I think it will be all the, the only aspect of healthcare that we have in, in the next two to five years? No. I don't, I don't think it would be totally what we have, but again, that's a speculation. I don't know what the government will say, but I think I, I, we'll get more penetration. It will be adopted more, but I don't think that will that will be the the only venue that we will have. No, it's a great point, Dr. Ram. So I always tend to think about it along the same lines, which is the four P's or the four 
powers of healthcare, patients, providers, payers, and policymakers, the four Ps, the four powers of healthcare, have to move in the same direction with respect to the value-based care. There is no other way this can be achieved. And that's a great question, Mrs. D. Thank you for asking. If one of them is headed in a different direction, the whole value-based care outcomes cannot be achieved. That's, uh, exactly. that's I think that's the, the intention of when it came into place was that all these four will move towards that direction. Having said that, my question or one of my observations is value-based care has always had the risk calculation attached with it, right? Because it's all about assuming that risk. I wonder, is there, are there algorithms running at the back of whoever is implementing value-based cares to potentially not choose more risky populations and still be on the safer side with respect to implementing the value-based care models. If that's going to happen, then one of them is not going in the same direction as where the outcomes need to be headed. I, I just wondered always, I frankly do not have data, but I've always wondered, is that happening? If that is happening, how can trainings and designs take care of this at the source so that you know it is agnostic to certain risk algorithms, but it is actually or potentially even encouraging people to take the model more to the high risk populations versus the other way around? That's a good question. Um, and I don't know if that is happening. I can't say for certain at all uh, if that is happening in the background. Um, but what I can say is that the value, a lot of the value-based models that we have right now are with some of the most at-risk populations. So one, we know it works. We okay. know that, that, that you, we know that there are there are good outcomes from this model because what a lot of the, these companies have done is take the most at-risk population and manage that most at-risk population and, and come back and said, look, my outcomes are better, my diabetes population is more well controlled, my hypertension my hypertension population is more controlled. I have less hospitalizations. And if I do have, have a hospitalization, if I do have an ER run, because so look, they look at uh, ER rates also and admission rates, when my people do have to go to the emergency room, their admission rate is higher. So they really do need to go. So with those, if you are start, starting your model, if the majority of your model right now and implementation is that is with those really, really at-risk populations and you're showing that it works, are there going to be some people, uh, you know, you can't have a business model where no one decides that, oh, it's smart for us to cherry pick who we choose and who we don't choose. Somebody's going to do that. But I can't say that that's happening now. And I don't I don't have any evidence to say that that's happening now. But it is great to hear from an expert like you, Dr. Ramsu, that wherever it has been implemented in some of those high risk populations, it has shown results. Absolutely. I mean, that's that's a great start. I mean, it's reassuring to me forget all my healthcare presents aside as a common man, it's reassuring to me that the, the value-based care models, wherever they're being implemented, especially in those high-risk populations, it's working. And you mentioned a lot of use cases, examples that the model has worked well in the senior population. And we all know how disproportionately our senior population was impacted during, you know, during pandemic. And that has exposed the access and quality of care, a lot of healthcare issues in our senior population. And, and, and if models like this will continue to work in such uh, high-risk populations, it's always reassuring to the common people that 
know, the policymakers and payers and providers, and all of us are moving in the same direction. Absolutely. It's uh, a great point. Now, coming a little bit to uh, the technology enablement of this, Dr. Ramso, as, as a lot of our viewers and audience may have already learned, Dr. Ramso is, is a healthcare leadership coach. He's a clinician. Uh, he's also uh, an innovator. Uh, he is, like he said, he has adopted telemedicine years before it actually became even a thing. Uh, so he's he's an early adopter and innovator. So from a technology perspective, you know, we are seeing a lot of technology enablement of the, the insurer tech, insurer technologies, the payer technologies. There's a lot of technology enablement of um, uh, the patient care itself, you know, remote patient monitoring, helping value-based care, uh, and potentially telemedicine now improving access to primary care, telemedicine improving access to mental health, and all those things. So for a lot of those, because of a lot of those technology advancements, we are also seeing more technology payer, players coming and starting to flood the healthcare space. What would, as a clinician and as somebody who has fought for the people-centric healthcare for many years, what would your recommendation be to all those technology players trying to flood into the market? It might be a good thing if they do it in the right way. What are you seeing and what is your recommendation to, to such technology play in the healthcare space? I, I think the, I knew the flood was going to come again. Uh, you know, it was it the uh, telemedicine technology, uh, the theory behind it has been around for over 20 years. Uh, it, military has, has used it. Uh, residency programs have used it. Why did it become so popular? Well, one, based upon necessity lately. Uh, and then even with that necessity, people started paying for it, as, as in third-party payers started paying for it. Well, then that's when people come when there is, a, there is an opportunity uh, to make revenue from that. So you know the new entry uh, players into the into that telemedicine space or to the technology market. I asked them a chief question: What problem do they solve? What do they do for the patient? What is their what is their responsibility and op an opportunity and obligation to the provider of that care? Because there in some in some of those there is a disconnect between those also. So it you know the. Not only this, you can do. There's another market that's coming up that you know in the in the cannabis space uh, that then you'll see that way gains in the market. And if you don't believe it, then watch the start market because you know that that's going to be one of the next emerging markets because of of medical marijuana and things of that nature. Um, so, what are you doing for the patient? How is this a greater patient experience? And have you been a patient? I, you'd be surprised how many telemedicine companies have had their leadership not ever be not ever had a telemedicine encounter a real one i mean a one that they needed that like they were sick and they went to a telemedicine platform and then from there because uh, a lot of it comes from experience if you have an experience what the, your patients need to experience then that's a problem how are you dealing with the providers how are uh, you know who are helping you with this service are you creating a patient experience that is more efficient are you creating access? Are you creating more technology? Are you creating ease of process? Answer those questions first. How, so the question I want them to, to ask themselves is, how are you benefiting? How are you benefiting the people that you're serving first before you benefit yourself? 
And I think that's going to make the difference in there because we we need these access. And I think they're, you know, people have to understand that are they coming in to take over and change the way we do medicine? No, I, I think these are excellent adjuncts because people still want, again, going back to the people aspect, but people still want to see people, but I want to have access to you and I want you to have access to me to, to address your needs. And I think that's what people have to understand. Um, and and the, these entry players and how are you creating a different experience? How are you different? Just like a job interview, you know, why you and what are you doing that's so different that I should choose you? That's what people are going to are, are going to gravitate to that patient experience. Uh, and from the provider from the provider side, the 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 big thing is the is the compensation. So you're charging someone $150 for a visit, that patient, and you give the clinician 30. So you know, and the clinician finds out about it, and you wonder why you know there's turnover there are things like so let's be you know let's bring some common sense back to medicine my my mother always says that common sense is not common i didn't know at the time she was saying it that she was actually saying it about me personally but <laughs> it, you know but it we have to bring some common sense back to things. let's ask those questions let's do things that make sense and people when they, when people tell us things that don't make sense let's challenge that let's ask a secondary question and say well that doesn't quite make sense and how does it benefit everybody around? There has to, you know, in order for me to stay with you, uh, people don't leave institutions, they leave people. If I feel as though that I've been wronged by you, if I feel that, you know, that you don't respect what I do, you don't respect my knowledge, you don't respect what I bring to the table, then I'm going to leave. That's the same for a patient as it is for a clinician. The same thing. That's a great point. People leave people, not institutions. So how do you make your operations more people-centric? And you brought up a good point, which really nicely alludes to some of the price transparency um, mechanisms that are being implemented, or there is attempts to implement those things. We at Direct Shifts, we have seen a lot of those adverse events as well, pretty much in the staffing industry that we are in. We connect clinicians directly to employers to pretty much bring that pricing transparency. Like, you know, what as an employer you're, you want to pay to some of these clinicians, to some of these healthcare workers, what as healthcare worker do you expect to be paid? Let's make a connection. Let's make a match between those two based on those expectations, profile and preferences and all those things. That's what we do. And we have seen that. I think we firmly believe there is a need for pricing transparency in the staffing industry as well. Uh, there's a lot of price gouging that has happened forever. That's one of the reasons our mission exists, which is create better pricing transparency, better convenience and liquidity in the market so that enough clinicians who we all know are short in the market anyways, compared to the actual demand, so that they can actually go pick up staffing opportunities or job opportunities in areas that have traditionally not had the right access to the right talent. Uh, that's one of the reasons that we exist. Um, so what you're saying with respect to the price transparency, you know, making sure the people really do not feel they're wrong, people, they have the information that they need to succeed. Uh, that is something that we encounter on a day-to-day -day basis. Absolutely. I think that's the same thing with patients as well. And if I heard you clearly, Dr. Ramsey, what you're saying is for all those tech companies out there that are trying to come in to potentially do their part of disruption, make sure you always ask the hard question of what you're doing to the patient, what are you doing to the clinicians, etc. And how we have potentially always tried to solve that problem is 
have enough clinicians, enough customers, give us more feedback. Like, tell us you know, how could we improve? Absolutely. The, the fundamental belief that we have is if it is not with you, it is not for you. Excellent. I think that's excellent. Um, I, and I think that, you know, we have to, under, we have to understand that um, collaboration is key. We can't do this alone. Uh, we can't do it in isolation. We can't do it in our silos. We've done that, and you see where where we're at, where we are, where we are, and where we stand. Uh, so, the, I think the leaders of the future. I think that that we're going to come out of uh, this crisis. I think we're coming out of it stronger. Uh, innovation is going to be key, and not only innovation in technology, but innovation in thought. Looking at different perspectives, the people who are able to garner opinions from a wide range of people to help solve a problem, to help come to a solution about the problems in healthcare are going to become immensely successful. The organizations that realize that they're one of their chief assets, they have two chief assets. One is the patients that they serve. The other one are the people that work, work with them and for them. Once you understand that, um, that, that these organizations are made up of people that that have families that that have needs, you, you can understand that the control uh, of actually the motivation, the control, the stimulation of only ten inches of the most important real estate that we have, which is our mind and our heart. Those are the people that understand that. The leaders that understand that they're going to be the ones that are going to be successful because they're going to be nimble. Why are they going to be nimble? Because they listen to the people that work with them. They listen to the people that are actually doing the work. And you, you came to an agreement. You presented what you have to get done. And because, you know, here are the parameters. I have to get this done. I have to complete this mission. I want your opinion about how we can best com complete it without breaking rules, without, you know, without causing commotion. How can we do this and make it smooth for you also? That's a collaboration. That collaboration is going to lead you to success in the future in those companies and those leaders that can do that and can garner that and also have, you know, show the respect and admiration uh, and also develop. Development and education is key uh, for your staff. You're developing them. You invest in them. You actually know who they are. You want the best for them. Those are the places that are going to flourish and those are the organizations that are going to succeed. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm going to steal one of your statements, Dr. Ramsey, the 10 inches of real estate that is really important to us, our mind and heart. I think it's important that we all remember that and make the most out of that real estate uh, and make sure our IQ and EQ are always in the right place uh, with respect to people cent running people-centric operations. Perfect, perfectly said. Thank you for that. Um, uh, although I could do this for the entire day, I just want to limit this to one last question. <laughs> uh, for sure, I, I promise this will be the last question. No um, the, as as you know, and all of our audience knows, um, this is uh, the first of our celebration of the Black History Month. Um, we are extremely happy and, and proud and privileged to have Dr. Ramsu as our first guest speaker in our celebration of Black History Month. And this uh, Black this time Black History Month's theme is uh, Black Family Representation, Identity, and Diversity. So, Dr. Ram, so for our audience out there, with this as the theme um, for the Black History Month this time around, uh, and we all know there have been historic challenges 
on all three aspects, representation. Let's take just healthcare. There has been challenge. You, you gave us a lot of statistics that clearly talk about those representation challenges, potential identity challenges and diversity challenges that still exist in the healthcare space, maybe on the workforce side of it or on the right representation on the patient side of it to understand their needs. Those challenges still exist. And we are so glad that the theme really reflects the challenges that we have today uh, for black families, representation, identity, and diversity. So what, in your, your opinion, uh, should, uh, in terms of from the healthcare perspective, what should happen more in order for representation, identity, and diversity to improve in the healthcare space? What do you personally want to see more of uh, that we all uh, should take a note of? I think uh, essentially we have to understand one thing about just about life uh, in general. Uh, it is the acquisition, the development, and the maintenance of relationships. And I think that's important, not only in the African-American community, but in every community. So we have to encourage people from a from an early stage. Some of the, some of the disparities that we're seeing, some of the uh, misrepresentation or underrepresentation of uh, historically excluded groups within medicine happens at such an early age. It, it didn't happen in high school. It didn't happen at college. It happened at elementary school. Uh, it happened to me. Um, luckily, I mean, I had a third grade teacher that told me that when I read out loud, I sounded ignorant. So that, to this day, that sticks with me before I before I give a speech, before I, read, I still I still hear that in my head. So we have to we have to understand that messages matter. Words matter. So so does mentorship. So does coaching. So does interaction. So does, you know, people are looking at these, uh, you know, big things as, as far as leadership is concerned with the John Maxwell's and things of that nature. But let's make it simple. How about there's how about you just encourage someone today? Who did you help today? When you wake up in the morning, said that before your day is done, that you're going to help someone. There is someone out there waiting to hear your voice. You do not know who that who that is. And as a as a clinician and as a physician, you, we need to represent that. We need to get more African American males into medicine. That's one of my charges. Um, we need to have more representation in leadership, especially if you look at the Fortune 500. You just look at the executive leadership page. That it does not reflect the pop patients that they patient population they serve, and it does not reflect even their workforce. Training, development, telling people that the opportunities are there, widening people's scope. A lot of people don't even understand the. the potential for leadership that is out there uh, in medicine. I know some of that thing. I know more people that know more than my job is to expose them to that and give them all the help that I can give them so they can access that. So help where you can do your part, make yourself, make your voice known, fight for those who can't fight for themselves. And I think we'll see a change. Thank you, Dr. Ramsu, for those powerful words. In the best hope for change going forward, I really want to end this show and we are profoundly grateful for having you as our first guest speaker as we celebrate the Black History Month. And a leader like you, a clinician like you, and a veteran like you, we salute you for all the services and all the things that you continue to do to create impact in the community. Thank you so much for being a guest with us. And I hope we can talk more and more about all these things and bring more information out to the world. Thank you, Ramsey. I, I really appreciate the opportunity. Um, and hopefully we can work together in the future. If you need me, you know how to access me. 
Thank you very much. Absolutely. Thank you. Raj? Yeah. Thank you all. Uh, if you are uh, still watching this and if your question is not answered, please inbox us. Thank you, Mrs. D, for watching this live. I know that your second question is still there, but do watch this on Google Podcasts and on Apple Podcasts. And you can always inbox uh, Dr. Ramsu and Wamshi. I'll uh, text you through YouTube comments. And for all the people out there, uh, happy celebrations. Let the entire month. It's not only the month, as uh, everybody says, let's celebrate for entire year. Let's celebrate it for life in every breath we take. So thank you so much for tuning in live. And if you're watching the replay, please do share, like, and comment uh, with the community and the friends and the family. And I'll see you with another episode of Direct Shift Stories. Thank you, Vamshi. Thank you, Dr. Ramsu. It's, it's an honor. <laughs> I mean, I love <laughs> no, my pleasure. My I had uh, probably everybody out here also who was watching, a couple of them, they all had goosebumps, but we'll keep talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you for um, staying live and uh, keep watching uh, other episodes of Direct Shift Stories. Thank you all. Yes, sir. All right. Have a good day.